You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Marie Antoinette said, let's eat cake. Can this be possible for a child with diabetes? Join me at the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. William Tamberlane. Dr. Tamberlane is Professor of Pediatrics and Chief of the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology at the Yale University School of Medicine. He is Director of the Children's Diabetes Program, Deputy Director of the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation, and is the 2006 recipient of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation Excellence in Clinical Research Award. Today we're discussing the state of the art in the treatment of type 1 diabetes. Hi, Dr. Tamberlane, and thank you for taking the time to join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Well, hi, Bill. It's nice talking with you again. What startling changes have you seen in the diagnosis and treatment of type 1 diabetes? Well, I liked your lead-in about diet. I mean, that certainly has changed considerably since I started taking care of diabetes back in 1975. So back then, you know, we didn't even have blood testing to monitor plasma glucose or hemoglobin A1Cs to see what the average blood sugar has been over for the last three months. So there was actually a lot of witch doctoring that went into the care of diabetes. And we actually set up these sort of feeding rituals rather than actually take good care of patients. We also had very limited ideas about how we should give insulin. So there were a couple of things. We we would try to give only one or two shots of insulin a day. We would definitely not try to vary that amount of insulin because we had very, you know, horrible ways to try to monitor how the patients were doing. And we then tried to get the patients to live around the insulin. You know, they had to eat at the same time. They had to eat meals that roughly had the same amount of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. Basically, live for your diabetes. Well, we know that even for relatively boring adults, that's, you know, our life doesn't work that way, but, you know, it particularly wasn't very useful for children. The other major diet concept was that simple sugars get absorbed once they're eaten much too rapidly. We couldn't control the glucose excursion if you ate a lot of uh, simple sugars or what we then called, of course, sweet. Is that what they're sort of talking about when they mentioned the glycemic index? Yeah, yeah. But back then it was just sweets. You don't want to have candy and soda. (laughs) So you were supposed to just eat starches because they got absorbed more, you know, they had to be digested more slowly and you had a, a gentler glucose rise after meal. And now we call them complex carbohydrates. Complex carbohydrates, very simple sugars or simple carbohydrates. And well, it turns out that concept is okay if you have, a, you know, it's the middle of the afternoon and you're just going to drink a big uh, glass of regular Coke. But when you're eating a mixed meal that has protein and fat in it, it was very difficult to show that the postprandial glucose rise was very different in a meal that had a lot of sucrose versus a meal that had very little sucrose and the same amount of carbohydrate was given as starch. Things like, you know, fat content slows down gastric emptying and is more important than the, the digestion of complex carbohydrates. We've been able to move away from that considerably. We now have multiple injection therapies so that the patients can take boluses of rapid-acting insulin when they want to eat, and they can adjust 
that amount of insulin depending on what they estimate the total amount of carbohydrates to be. The proteins, the fat, do not have a significant impact in the control of the diabetes and the, and the regulation of the insulin? I'm not sure I fully understood that, that we're now focusing completely on carbohydrate? The vast majority of the glucose excursion is generally thought to be is related to the you know amount of uh, carbohydrate in the meal. It's not a perfect answer. And there is, just like you talked about, you know, even foods with the same amount of total carbohydrates may cause the blood sugar to go up to a different degree. That's the glycemic index you were talking about. But for patients, especially where we're monitoring glucose, you know, we're using finger stick glucoses or alternate site testing, we would be happy to get patients to make sure they measure their blood sugar four times a day namely before each meal and then at bedtime. We rarely even see what happens to the peak of glucose after a meal. So in that context and in the context of trying to keep it as simple as possible or manageable as possible, we just currently ask the patients to estimate the total amount of carbohydrate and for these purposes actually do not pay attention to protein and fat. I've read about a concept called the basal bolus insulin regimen. Is that a bit what you're talking about? That's exactly what we're talking about. So the pancreas makes some insulin around the clock when you're not eating or whether you're eating, and that's so-called basal insulin. And then when you eat a meal, as the carbohydrate gets absorbed and the sugar levels go up, you need a burst of insulin to open up muscle, fat, and other insulin-dependent tissues to take up the extra glucose. And that's called the bolus. So basal bolus therapy. And that can be accomplished either through multiple injections. There are now two long-acting insulin analogs that provide very good basal replacement, Lantus and Levomir insulin. And then the patient, either by syringe or, inje- or by pen, will then administer a rapid-acting insulin analog every time they eat. If you have just joined us... You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. William Tamberlane. Dr. Tamberlane is Professor of Pediatrics and Chief of the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology at the Yale University School of Medicine. We're discussing the treatment of type 1 diabetes. You mentioned the analog insulins. What's different about them? Are there less insulin antibodies that are formed because they're analogs or... What advantages do they offer? Before I get there, we just want to get back to one thing. So basal bolus, so we say we could do it with injections, but you could also do it with insulin pumps. That, that was the final thought of there. So, you know, insulin pumps are you program the pump to give a basal infusion, and that can be varied actually every 30 minutes to pick out certain times of the day where you may need a little more basal, a little less. And then instead of having to take separate injections, you actually just push some buttons on the pump, tell how many units of rapid-acting insulin are supposed to be administered, and you activate it and it gives you your pre-meal bolus. And I assume that one of the main driving forces for the pump, in addition to hopefully a better quality of life for these children, is also better control of their diabetes? Well, that's the whole purpose of basal bolus therapy, whether it's injections or by pumps. But, you know, there are other advantages of pump therapy, such as just giving a, able to give like an infinite number of boluses without having to poke yourself every time. Actually being able to disconnect the pump and stop the basal infusion when you may not need extra insulin, such as when you're exercising. 
the newer pumps actually have dose calculators. It's well recognized that many patients need extra insulin for the same amount of carbohydrate at breakfast than they need for the other meals. So you can actually have different insulin to carbohydrate ratio for different meals. And the patient just punches, uh, you know, what meal it is and puts in the number of grams of carbohydrate and the uh, pump actually calculates for that amount for them. So that's only a few of the advantages. So you you wanted to get back to the analog issue? The analog insulin, what's the advantage of that and what is that? So when biosynthetic techniques came out, the first application was to actually produce human insulin in the laboratory and get away from having to collect pancreases from pigs and and cattle. That had a huge advantage as far as enhanced purity of the insulin and actually avoidance of antibody production against, uh, you know, animal insulins, which are not identical to human insulin. So first we produce human insulin, and then the pharmaceutical um, industry then looked at ways that the insulin molecule could be altered. So we have ended up with very rapid-acting insulin analogs and very long-acting insulin analogs. And as you might be able to tell just by the terms, the primary effect that they've been looking at is to make some relatively modest modest modifications of the insulin molecule to change its pharmacokinetics without changing its biological action or its immunogenicity. When you said change the uh, biokinetics, I re- read the term peakless insulin. Is that what we're talking about? So that's the, the those are the long-acting insulins. Yeah. So t- traditionally, we use things like NPH and lenti insulin for a combination of basal, and, and, and they had a peak. So during the day, actually, if you gave a, a big dose of NPH in the morning, you could, because it peaked, you can try to get it to cover part of lunch as well. That might work okay during the day, but during the night, if you're giving NPH or lenti, the problem was it tended to peak in the middle of the night and uh, drive the blood glucose low and maybe contribute to hypoglycemia during the night. That's why there's great interest in, you know, when the uh, Lantus, which was the first long-acting insulin analog, was introduced. The other advantage of long-acting analogs, and it's a very simple one, is that the old-fashioned intermediate-acting insulins or long-acting insulins made the insulin last longer by simply precipitating it in the bottle. So, you know, that's why patients called NPH and, and lenti or ultra-lenti cloudy insulin. So, you know, you had to actually literally suspend it by shaking the, the damn vial up. And just doing that introduces an error from one dose to the next of up to 25%. So so the fact that you could draw it up a precise amount because these long-acting insulin analogs are in solution in the vial, then inject it in the skin and the method of protraction is such that you get a fairly flat profile that lasts up to 24 hours or even more. was a cause of considerable uh, enthusiasm um, by endocrinologists and by, uh, you know, primary care people. On the other end, the first analogs that were introduced were actually enhanced the absorption, the rapidity of absorption, or very fast-acting insulin. So this was... Lyspro or Aspart, also known as Umalog or Novolog insulin. Umalog being the first rapid-acting insulin. If you remember back to regular insulin, this insulin, it was clear because the insulin molecules were in solution. 
But it turns out that insulin tends molecules, even in solution, tend to stick together. So the actual primary form in the vial is a hexamer. So there's like six insulin molecules sort of clumped together, even though it looks like it's in solution. You have to break up the hexamers before it was absorbed. The strategy behind the rapid-acting insulin analogs is to make some amino acid substitution so that the insulin doesn't stick together so much, and therefore, as soon as you inject it, it gets absorbed faster. Well, it's nice to see that there is progress being made even at the basic level of the insulin that the children have to take. I always say that the old... uh, Teaching residents was uh, boring when you talked about insulin. Now there's all kinds of different. uh, It's more exciting. Glad I don't have to take tests on these things. Yes. I want to thank Dr. William Tamberlane, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing the treatment of type 1 diabetes. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.